be right with you. Maybe not. Hey, there's a lot going on in the life of our church, as you probably have already heard. My name's Eric Barton, and I get the pastor down here. It is amazing to me when unconferenced Mike or someone will get up in our opening announcement block and pretty much deliver the entire sermon in concept. And I'm not kidding. Like, it's an amazing reaffirmation that the spirit of the living God is in this place to, to speak to us corporately, individually, and as a church family. So I'm grateful for that. I do want to correct a nuance. One thing Mike did say, he seemed to indicate that his value, his eternal worth was not tied to balloons, and that is incorrect. <laughs> it absolutely is. So after you're finished praying for the Murphys, if you got any breath left, pray for Mike's eternal destiny and the balloons they're associated with. Hey, one of the great things that we get to do is to be together as a church family. And that means there's a lot of things that we get to discuss and a lot of things with which we involve ourselves, i.e. missions, there, near, everywhere, and here. And so you've heard from Scott and Mary, and we love them. They are us doing the work of giving the gospel in this context such that the gospel can then be given in other contexts. It's the Acts 1-8 uh, table of, of contents. You'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria to the other parts of the earth. And they're doing that. They're sending people out all over the world. We get to come together and we sing songs together. We corporately confess. We agree with one another. We declare the excellencies of our God. And then we get to gather around God's word as the centerpiece of what we do as a church is the gathering around God's word. I was out of town this weekend and someone said, gosh, does it just freak you out? Is it a lot of pressure? Does it make you nervous to preach? I said, no. Like, I get to tell people that Jesus has done the thing. Like, what pressure? Like, Jesus has done the thing. So now I get to explain specifically in this context how and what he has done. So buckle up. Your Bible is amazing. It is this meta-collection, it is this meta-narrative of all these micro-narratives, and there is this recurring theme in your Bible that goes like this. There's God, there's people, there's sin, there's judgment, but there's a Savior. Next page. There is God, there's people, there's sin, there's judgment. But there's a savior. Next page. There's God. There's people. But there's sin. And so there's judgment. But there's a savior. We see one of those microcycles occur way back in the book of Isaiah. In Isaiah chapter 34, we have the prophet Isaiah writing to the people of Israel some seven and a half centuries before the first advent of Christ. And in Isaiah chapter 34, what you see is God, Yahweh, speaking through the prophet Isaiah immediately to the people of Israel, but ultimately to the world. And Isaiah 34 says some horrible, horrific things. God says, I am enraged with the nations. Incidentally, that's a very bad place to be. I am enraged with the nations. My fury will pour down. It will be a haunt for jackals. My desolation, my devastation, my destruction will be utter. I have had it up to here, my mom would say. God says, I have had it up to here. And you read Isaiah 34 and you go, well, that's it. The Lord God most high is about to carpet bomb the entire galaxy and make a parking lot of our universe. <laughs> But then you get Isaiah 35. If you got Isaiah 35 for just a moment, go with me there. It's just 10 short verses, but I want you to catch the fresh air. While our world of its own volition descends into filth and foul and frustration, won't somebody do something? Well, what can you do when God is enraged with the nations? Isaiah 35, it goes like this. Ah, the wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice and blossom like the crocus. But wait, Yahweh was enraged with the nations. There was judgment, fire, and fury. But <laughs> there is a Savior who will make all things new, who will make all things clean. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given to it. That's interesting. Hmm. 
The majesty of Carmel and Sharon, they shall see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. Strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with recompense of God. He will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. For waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The burning sand shall become a pool and the thirsty ground springs of water. In the haunt of jackals where they lie down, the grass shall become reeds and rushes, and a highway shall be there, and it shall be called the way of holiness. The unclean shall not pass over it. It shall belong to those who walk on the way, those who are clean. Even if they are fools, they shall not go astray. That's very good news, by the way. One of my life verses. Though you be a fool, God's got this. Verse 9, no lion shall be there, nor shall any ravenous beast come upon it. They shall not be found there. But the redeemed, those who have been made clean, shall be there, shall walk there. And the ransom of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. There's God. There's people, there's sin, and so there's judgment, but there is a Savior. Now, we're in a sermon series this semester in the Gospel of Mark, and so far we've made it through six chapters of the Gospel of Mark, and we've said every single week, the more we examine the object of our faith, the more our faith grows. You've already heard Elise as she as she read and as she prayed about our world descending into foul and filth and fury and frustration. Won't someone do something? Imagine if you're Mark sitting in Rome 2,000 years ago as the Roman Empire is beginning to tumble and it's beginning to fumble and it's beginning to come apart. Won't somebody do something? And Mark at the direction of the apostle Peter is saying, oh, he has. God has done something. Who is king? Who is Lord? It's not Caesar. It's not the Senate. It's not the Republic or the empire. It is this Jesus of Nazareth. Look to him, the object of our faith, and our faith will grow. Because in the midst of judgment, God sends forth a savior. In the midst of filth, God will make it clean. And so that's our big idea for this morning. If you've got your Bibles, turn to Mark chapter 7, where we're going to see that Jesus cleans. Jesus cleans. And perhaps a byline, if Jesus doesn't clean it, it ain't really clean. Now that's important. If Jesus doesn't clean it, it isn't really clean. So we're in Mark chapter 7. We've just come through the longest day. For those of you who were not here last week, or perhaps you were and you slept then and since then, let me remind you, Mark chapter 6, the longest day where Jesus sends out his disciples on a short-term mission trip. He's rejected in Nazareth. We're told about the death of John the Baptist. Jesus feeds 5,000 men plus all their families on a hillside. And then he walks on the water, passes by to demonstrate, declare his deity and his divinity. And then he goes to the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee and heals many sick and demon possessed. <sighs> that was a big day. Some time after, we're not quite sure how much time has passed, Mark has us still on the northern shore of the Sea of Galilee in this village called Capernaum. Capernaum is sort of the scholastic center of northern Israel at this time. So in Mark chapter 7, he says, now when the Pharisees gathered to him, so the Pharisees, these, these guys who were the fighting fundamentalists of the time, they come north. They descend in elevation. They come north. Again, we've already seen this happen before. They come north to Capernaum to check out what's going on in this backwater of Capernaum. The Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes. Remember, these are the, the legislators. These are the guys that take a list and make it longer. Oh, we had Torah from Moses, and that was great, but it didn't go far enough. And so these scribes, these legislators, continued to add to the strictures of the law with their traditions, we're going to find out in just a moment. They had come from Jerusalem. They saw that some of his disciples 
ate without hands, that, or they ate with hands that were defiled. That is, and Mark explains, because he's sitting in Rome, and there was some confusion in the early church and in people in Rome. What was the deal with all these Jewish food laws? And so he explains that some of these people saw that the disciples ate with hands that were defiled. That is, unwashed. And then he adds, parenthetically, for the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders, Mark explains. Ah, tradition. Perhaps you've seen the great old movie or musical Fiddler on the Roof where you have Tevye, and he explains that all of us are standing on shaky legs as though we are fiddlers on the roof, all of us. Shaky. And what holds us, what binds us to that position of being a fiddler on the roof? Tradition! And I'm not going to sing the song. And he goes into this 13-minute song about tradition, our conversations with the past. And then he finally asks at the end, you may ask, where do these traditions come from? I don't know. <laughs> but I can tell you, they hold us together. 1905 is the setting of these Jewish Russians in the pale at the turn of the 20th century. This idea of tradition is going to collide directly with the Son of God. Keep reading, verse 4. And when they came from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. So this is not just, hey, like your mom, you need to wash your hands because you've been out. No, no, this is a ceremonial cleaning because you've been in the marketplace and you never know who you encounter at the marketplace. I mean, ask the Murphys. They go to Walmart. <laughs> you never know who you're going to run into there. And so you might run into a Gentile. There might be some, there might be some pork being purveyed over in another market nearby. There might have been some utensils. You just never know. So you better wash your hands. It's not like the disciples were walking around with filth and ich all over their hands. They weren't doing the ceremonial thing to be extra special, safe, and clean. They had all these traditions that they didn't wash, and there were many other traditions that they observed, such as washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. You, you even have to wash the chairs because somebody with some ick might have sat on that chair. You don't want to sit on that. So you better wash the chair, and then you wash yourself, and then you wash yourself having washed the chair, and then you wash your because you wash it. And they had all these rules. What if a bug flies by your oven in a counterclockwise direction? Oh, you got to get a new oven. What if it flies by in a clockwise direction? Well, well, how big was the bug? Well, its name was Bill. And we didn't like Bill, so you got to get a new oven. Well, what about this pot? There was a bug that landed on the pot, didn't go in it, just was on the outside of it. Well, the food's okay. But in the food, the bug was there for more than about so much time. All these things. And so Jesus is going to interrupt and address their tradition. Now, tra there's nothing wrong with tradition. Tradition is good. It is a conversation with the past. One theologian Eastern European man named Yaroslav Pelikan. He said, tradition is the living faith of the dead. They have passed on. Traditionalism is the dead faith of the living. Where we do what we do simply because that's the way we've always done it. Where did it come from? What's it rooted in? What is it based on? I don't know. We just do it and it has become the stuff of law. And so these guys, these Pharisees, these legislators see Jesus and his disciples, and they just smack their hands straight into the hummus. And the Pharisees shriek in horror. What is the deal? The problem is not with the disciples. The problem is with the rabbi. And the Pharisees, verse 5, and the scribes asked Jesus, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? Ew, 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 your disciples, they're such... Not uses. Ugh. Why do they do that? And they don't abide by the traditions of the elders. Now, you know Jesus. I hope you love Jesus. I hope you kind of get what Jesus is like. I hope you expect him to go, you know, oh, you guys, here, let me, let me help. Let me clarify. Let me explain. You expect Jesus to go, hey, how's your mom and them? Did you see the game last night? Not so much. Not at all. Jesus just looks at him, and he essentially ignites a napalm canister. This is how not to win friends or influence people. Not Jesus' concern. Watch how he answers them in verse 6. And he said to them, Well, did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites? <laughs> I mean, that is straight and to the point, right? That is direct. Well, did Isaiah, the guy that you claim to know and love, the prophets from 700 plus years ago, well, did he prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far 
from me. Now, we hear the word hypocrite in the 21st century, and we frequently associate that with the accusation that comes against the church. Oh, I don't go to church. The church is full of hypocrites. True. And I hear people say, well, I don't want anything to do with church people. They confess all this, that, and either, but their conduct is terrible between the Sundays. And I go, no, 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 no. It's bad on Sunday too. You should see it. It's, it's absolutely terrible. But that's not how Jesus really ever uses hypocrite. We get the idea of hypocrite. We think someone wearing a mask and playing a part. They're not playing a part. They are utterly and absolutely sincere. They're just wrong. They're just wrong. They're doing all the things and they're convinced that they're right unto death. Some of the people of the party, the Pharisees, would literally be martyred publicly and violently because they refused to eat pork. The Romans would force them. They wouldn't do it. And so they would be slaughtered, skinned alive, crucified, horrible things. So they believed this stuff sincerely. You got to remember, these Pharisees were kind of the, the original conservative fundamentalists. As the Greek culture, Hellenization pushes into Israel after Alexander the Great's conquest, and then Seleucus is the general that comes down and takes over the, the part of Palestine on the eastern edge of the Mediterranean. They impose and implement Greek culture, but the Pharisees put their foot in the ground. They say, heck no, not on our watch. We will build a fence of safety and security. Torah says that we can't do this. We're going to take what it said in the Torah in Leviticus for the priests for the priests, and we're going to apply it to all the people and then some. I know the sign says that the priests have to wash their hands like thus and such, but we tell you, you all people, you all have to wash your hands for thus and such and thus and such and thus and such and thus and such. It's like the speed limit is 55, but the Pharisees say, if you really want to be close to God, you never crest 15. You just, you want to be extra special safe. Now, in Leviticus, Torah was trying to say, listen, mediating on behalf of God to the people is difficult, it's costly, it's messy, it's not easy. God is holy, humans are common. You have to be prepared richly to stand in the place of the people before God. But the Pharisees took that and they go, no, no, we're going to apply that to everybody. You go to the Grand Canyon and there's a fence that says, stay back 10 feet. But the Pharisees say, never enter Nevada. You just don't, you can't be too careful. And the more careful you are, the safer you are, the cleaner you are before God. And so they impose all these rules on the people, giving them no chance to ever experience cleanliness. And they would walk around saying something awesome like cleanliness is next to godliness. Perhaps you even heard it. Perhaps you grew up in a home that said that. And Jesus says, Isaiah was right about you when he called you hypocrites. Youch. And then Jesus quotes from Isaiah chapter 29. He quotes from Isaiah 29 in verse 7. It says, people with me, and uh, they honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me. Hoy. He just called. Jesus just called the worship of these religious leaders vain, meaningless, and empty is your worship. God does not see it, does not receive it. Teaching as doctrines the commandments of men, you've taken the rules set up by people and you've elevated it as though God said it. Uh-oh. You've taken all these external actions and you've esteemed it as though God is giving a commandment of the heart. And God does not like that. Verse 8, you leave the commandments of God and hold to the traditions of men. You actually downplay and diminish the word of God and you elevate and esteem the words of men. I know it's hard for you to imagine that ever happening in the world, but just, just go with me on that for a moment. And he said to them, verse 9, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. And then you get the sense that he stops and he pivots and he looks at one of them in particular, who probably immediately begins to shake in his sandals. For Moses said, honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. You want to talk about commandments? Well, this is a commandment given by a man that was actually from God. You honor your father and your mother, and if you don't, the death penalty for you. Now, what does that mean? The retirement plan for all of antiquity, for pretty much all the world, is when your parents are aging, it is your responsibility to provide for them resources, shelter, food, comfort, care, all those things. 
But these scribes, these legislators, these Pharisees, these religious leaders had figured out how to game the system. Watch this. But you say, verse 11, if a man tells his father or his mother, whatever you would have gained from me is korban, that is, Mark explains, given to God. Hmm. Then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother. Here's how it would work. These Pharisees, these legislators who are very uh, affluent and influential, it was good money to be a Pharisee. You were paid for your wisdom and your learning. Their parents would begin to go old and say, hey, can you help us? Could you put up an extra room on your house? We need a place to stay. We don't have any food. And these Pharisees and these legislators and these scribes go, ah, sorry, Corban. It's a Hebraic term that gets, trans, gets transliterated into Greek and then into English. Corban, sorry, I can't help you. All of my resources have been committed to temple. Sorry, you know, God thing. Can't, can't help. Sorry, mom and dad. Good luck living under that bridge. It gets cold at night, but you've got each other. Mm, can't help because all my resources have been committed to God. No, I'm still alive, so the temple doesn't need it yet. So I'll continue to reap the benefits of all of my resources until I die, and then it goes to temple. And by the way, anybody who makes that similar vow, you cannot break it. And Jesus says, but, but in so doing, you are revoking and making void, declaring annulled the very word of God. Side note, quick rant. Anytime you find yourself esteeming anything above the word of God, you are in dangerous territory. Whether it's some clever new philosophy, idea, mantra, speech, or tweet, anything that you are hooking into above or beyond the word of God is in error. I warn you with a flashing red siren. We start and we center and we finish on the very word of God. These guys, the teachers, the defenders of Israel had gone off course in a hurry. Verse 13, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down and many such things you do. That's just one example. You get the idea, he's like looking and he goes, like you, Shlomo, your parents are starving, but you've declared korban and your parents have nothing, but you're, well, you're fat and happy, but you've claimed that it's for temple. You're a hypocrite. You think you're right, but I'm telling you you're wrong. And he pulls the, the pin on this napalm grenade and lights a fire. He's just told them that everything they believe that some of their friends had probably been martyred for was wrong. And he's deadly serious about it. Slight scene change, verse 14. And he called the people to him again. So the Pharisees and the scribes are still sitting there trying to figure out how to get their jaws off the ground for what this man, this rabbi in Capernaum has said to them, the learned ones of Jerusalem. And he calls the people around, perhaps with them still standing there. Hear me, all of you, and understand. This is about as close as you get in Scripture to Jesus grabbing someone by the chin and going, look here, listen, get this. And it's a quick one, very quick little lesson. Verse 15, there is nothing outside a person that is going into him, uh, that by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And the Pharisees go, nothing from the outside can defile you. It's what comes out of you that defiles you, which is a complete opposite of all the stuff that these Pharisees had written. Listen, they continued, these legislators, to write additional codes and strictures. By the second century AD, they have published this thing called the Mishnah or the Midrash. The modern English translation of it is 1,100 pages. And they elevate it to the position of God's word. Jesus says, you know, that 1,100 pages that they say makes you defiled by messing up any of it, nothing can defile you from the outside. It's what comes out of you that defiles you. And the disciples are going, probably what you're starting with, wait a minute, is Jesus talking about, I mean, seriously, is this seventh grade? Is Jesus really? Yes. Yes, he is. And the disciples are equally confused. Verse 17, and when he had entered the house and left the people. His disciples asked him about the parable. Yo, Jesus, did you really just talk about what comes out of a person? Because I mean, like, we don't talk about such things, Jesus, but Jesus does. And he said to them, then are you also without understanding? Are you so dull and dim? To which the disciples go, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him since it enters not his heart, 
but his stomach. Now, Jesus is the master rabbi. He's going to mix metaphor here. He's going to talk about the physical, that is the actual stomach, the koilia, where food goes in and the intestinal tract. And then he's going to talk about the heart, but he doesn't mean the blood pump. He means the center, the soul, the will, the mind of a person. And Jesus can do that. He's going to mix. It's a parable because he doesn't want to burn the entire region down in one full swap. He's trying to still navigate and contour his course. So that enters not his heart, but his stomach and is expelled. Yes, Jesus is talking about what you think he's talking about. Thus, he declares all foods clean. Mark explains here in Mark chapter seven. Yes, all the dietary strictures that the Jewish people had in place for 1,500 years is over. And as it turns out, it was never really about the food anyway. What it was always about was a condition of the heart, the soul, the will. To eat the foods that God said don't was a disobedience willfully of God's word. But Jesus says, now it's over. Eat whatever you want. Flamboyant ostrich for all I care. Fricassee a giraffe. Knock yourselves out. There is no such thing as clean or unclean food. Are there foods that are better for your body that you should steward yourself properly? I suppose I read that somewhere on the interwebs. I don't know. But yes, you can eat whatever you want. What you cannot do is tell anybody else that what they are eating is spiritual or not, or that it is spiritually unclean or not. That is equating the commandment of man to God, and God takes that very seriously rant over. Jesus declares all foods clean. And he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him, for from within. (laughs) Now, you kind of have to know some Bible here. What Jesus is going to do is read off 12 internal conditions. That is effectively Isaiah 34. All of these cardiovascular spiritual issues that come from within. From within, out of the heart of man come evil thoughts is the, head, is the heading there. Evil thoughts. And then he's gonna break it down. I'm not gonna unpack each one of these. I would love to, but there's 12 of them. The first six are plural. They have to do with what all of us are like, what all of us do by natural, by default, straight out of the wrapper. This is how we are. This is how we think. And then there are six of them that are singular. These are the things we do. Here's our attitudes. Here's our actions. Here's our beliefs. Here's our behaviors. And all of us carry them around already. Watch what he says here. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. I had someone just a few days ago, you know, they said to me downstairs, you you know, there's really nowhere in the New Testament that that sex outside of marriage is, is said is wrong. So I took this heavy book and I just started beating them with it. Have you read it? You get like four mentions by Jesus directly in Mark 7, not to mention 1 Corinthians 6 and Romans 6 and Titus. I mean, on and on and on and on and on. Yes, it's in there. But Jesus says, listen, let me me be as clear as I can. Nothing from the outside can defile you. Do you know why? Because you're defiled already. You're deeply depraved, defunct, deficient, and defiled already. All of you are. You don't commit sins and then are a sinner. No. You sin because you are a sinner. In other words, contra the siren song of our age. We are not net neutral. We are not, by default, good. We are defiled already. We are Isaiah 34. And the Lord is enraged at our depravity what I call the Taco Bell syndrome. Something inside has gone horribly wrong. All of us already. You walk around defiled already. And just like at the end of Isaiah 34, is there no hope? I mean, Jesus doesn't let anybody off the hook. All these evil things come from within and they defile a person. Okay, so, so what must I do to be clean? What hope have I to stand in the presence of a holy God? I am these things. I get it. What can be done? And then we get a scene change, and it's a remarkable 
scene change. I'm going to pick up speed because I want you to catch what Mark is doing because I want you to catch what Jesus is doing because the more you examine the object of your faith, the more your faith grows. Watch, watch, watch. Verse 24. And from there he arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon. (laughs) You don't just go to Tyre and Sidon, incidentally. It's 80 miles away by foot, incidentally, and you have to cross the Judean arch. It's really hard to get there from Capernaum. You have to make up your mind. This is going to take me more than a week to walk there. And by the way, where is Tyre and Sidon? Oh, it just so happens to be in modern-day Lebanon. It's about 80 miles north-northwest of Capernaum. It's in modern-day Lebanon. It's on the coast of the Mediterranean. It's a seaport. It is one of the most vile, defiled places of the ancient world. Ancient historian Josephus says that the people of Tyre were the absolute worst enemies of Israel ever. They betrayed them time and time again. When any other army would attack, Tyre would betray Israel. They would take the Israeli people and they would sell them off into slavery. They would traffic their children. The people of Tyre were awful. One of their most favorite, famous citizens, <laughs> Jezebel. Woohoo! You don't get many people naming their daughter Jezebel these days. Because her name means island trash. That's what Jezebel means. That's where she's from. And so Jesus goes, boys, get in the truck. We're taking a field trip. And so they're thinking, well, okay, surely not we're going back to the Decapolis. Because that was gross. And Jesus goes, oh, the Decapolis? No, 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 no. We're going to Tyre and Sidon. Which is like saying we're going to go into like a sweet 16 party with Al-Qaeda. Like it's the worst imaginable place. And so Jesus says, I have an appointment. We have to go. And so they make the week plus long journey and they go to Tyre and Sidon up on the Mediterranean coast. Check this out. From there he rose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon and he entered a house and did not want anyone to know. Yet he couldn't be hidden. His renown, his reputation, his fame are increasing. But he needs some relaxation and some recuperation. He needs some time with the disciples to teach them, to show them. But He can't be left alone, verse 25, but immediately, remember, Mark is an action movie. Two main teaching sections, chapter 4, chapter 13, we're still in the action movie, but immediately, there's a knock at the door. A woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. Now, Mark's going to explain to us this woman's resume. Now, the woman was a Gentile, strike one, she's a woman, strike two. I didn't say it, I'm just, listen, I'm just, what's happening? a Syrophoenician by birth, and she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. You know, I said a few weeks ago that the bleeding woman that Jesus encounters in Capernaum was about the lost of the lost, the last of the least. Knowing full well we would get to chapter seven, until you meet this woman, she's even downer and outer. She's entire inside and she has no access to Messiah. She has no access to the covenant community. She is disqualified on every single aspect of her life. She is female. She is Gentile. She's a, oh, sorry, uh, Syrophoenician. Oh, that's the grossest mix ever. These are people who, the, the, the Assyrians who had come down and had raided the 10 northern tribes, had literally skinned the people of Israel alive, led the women away with fish hooks, intermarried them with all the other regions to create this weird ugh, mix called the Samaritans. But she's not just that, she's also Phoenician. She, she's got this European descent from the island of Crete, now mixed in with the people of Syria. She's a Syrophoenician, that's how you're supposed to read that. And she's a Gentile, and she's a woman. And she lives in modern-day Lebanon outside of Israel. This is the only time Mark ever says that Jesus goes outside of Palestine. Oh, and by the way, you know, her daughter's got a demon. So she's not the first person you're planning to invite to your party, this woman. She's outside. She has no hope of ever being clean. And the Pharisees and legislators of Israel do not care. But this Jesus does. Oh man, does he ever watch this encounter? It's confounded people for centuries. It doesn't need to. Verse 27, and he said to her, let the children be fed first for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. I've spent plenty of time in high schools. I've never seen any girl with this verse on her letter jacket. This doesn't happen. Does Jesus just call this woman a dog? He does. 
but there's a reason. And there's a lot of grammatical things that are happening. We can unpack and exegete for a long time. The word for dog is thus. Jesus uses a cuter, more diminutive term for dog. Yes, that's interesting. But she knew what he was doing. The disciples didn't. The people of Israel referred to all Gentiles as dogs. Not just, just household pets, but dogs, the scavenger dogs. Jesus softens it. He refers to her as a, a little dog, but not like in terms of size, more like a diminutive kind of a pet, but still a dog. She does not take offense. The Gentiles had words for the Jews. The Jews had words for the Gentiles. And he just sort of very parabolically, speaking in parable, watch what he says again. He said to her, let the children be fed first, for it's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. She is undeterred because she knows that she is defiled. Hear me, hear me. She knows that she is defiled and has no other hope except for him. She answered him, yes, Lord, yes. Yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And there is one of the key verses of your New Testament. Jesus has just said, I am the child at the table. I am feeding the children, that is, the children of Israel. What Paul says in Romans 1.16, the gospel has come first to the Jew and then to the Gentile. It's not time for me to go global yet. But she says, oh, but there's enough. I know who you are. Oh, there's enough. I don't mind being called a little dog because you are the answer. You are the hope. You are the only one. Jesus, you can make me clean. That's what we heard the lepers say earlier. You are the one and the only one that can make me clean. I love how Jesus responds. And he said to her, for this statement, you may go your way. The demon and the verb tenses has already left your daughter. One of the instances we get, Jesus doesn't, wave his hand. He doesn't blink. He just, from a, it wasn't even hard. He could have, your daughter's already fine. She's already good because you get what's happening. I have come for Israel to offer them the kingdom. They will reject it. And Mark is offering the gospel, not the kingdom. He's offering the gospel by saying that Jesus offered the kingdom. It was rejected. And so now it's global. And she's the first one to get it. The disciples have no clue. And she went home and found the child lying in bed. And the demon gone. You may have already forgotten in Isaiah chapter 35, what we see is refreshing and renewing coming to Lebanon in early parts of Isaiah 35. See, Jesus had an appointment. It was worth him walking from Capernaum 80 miles over a week to get the tire inside. He had to meet with her then and there for that. And then he walks back. Keep watching. Then he returned from the region of Tyre and went through Sidon. So he goes even further north up to Sidon to the Sea of Galilee in the region of the Decapolis. No, 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 the Decapolis. He bypasses the Jewish parts altogether. He doesn't even go through Capernaum. He goes further north to Sidon and makes his massive horseshoe, comes around the backside of the Sea of Galilee. Now he's on the eastern shore of the Sea of Galilee, back in Gentile territory. This is now the third time that he showed up on that side of the lake. And they brought to him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment. And they begged him to lay his hand on him and taking him aside. So this guy is deaf and he has a speech impediment. But it's not just a speech impediment. It's because he's deaf, he, he really kind of can't talk at all. The, the word that Mark uses here is mogilalon. He's deaf and he is mogilalon. This word is used no other time in your New Testament at all. Mogilalon, it's very strange. It's very weird. It is, however, used one other time in your Bible, and it's in the Old Testament, and it's in Isaiah chapter 35, verse 6. More on that in a moment. And taking him aside from the crowd privately, he, this is a strange way to go about it. Remember how he healed the little girl of her demon? Watch what he does with this guy, this Gentile on the far side of the lake. Taking him aside from the crowd, he privately, he put his fingers into his ears and after spitting, touched his tongue. Okay, COVID, COVID, COVID! <laughs> no, no, not a problem back then. Puts his fingers in his ears, and you get the idea. He spits on the ground, and then he sighs. Oh, that's interesting language. And he prays to heaven, and he touches his tongue. Hmm. It's very moving. And looking up to heaven, he sighed, and he said to him, Ephatha. 
Why does he say it like that? Why does Mark record it that way? Well, it's an Aramaic. So it gives us the idea that this is in uh, native language of a Gentile. Ephatha would have been something that the man could have read lips and understood. And he says it as an expulsion of his breath. There's a washing. Ephatha. Be fully opened. And this deaf man who can't speak, who is Mogilalon, well, he sees this. And watch what happens. And his ears were opened, his tongue was released, and he spoke plainly. No speech therapy. He just articulated with great accuracy because Jesus healed completely, because Jesus cleans. You see, Jesus had just taught about what is clean and unclean, what defiles a person. It's nothing from the outside because you're defiled already. But Jesus demonstrates by going in essentially to the extent that he could, he goes inside and he cleans this man from within. Cleaned. Which begs the question Are you still relying on externals and tactics and tricks to convince yourself that you're cleaned? Or have you ever admitted I'm defiled? I can't hear. I can't see right. I can't speak right. My family's all jacked up. Ephatha, be opened. Ephatha, there's God, there's people, there's sin, there's judgment. Who is Lord? Who is King? This Jesus is Savior. And Jesus charged them to tell no one. <laughs> but the more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. And no, this is not reverse psychology. Jesus is making sure urgently that the messianic mystery persists, that he will get to the cross. He can't have his fame increase too rapidly. And they were astonished beyond measure, saying, he has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. Oh, this Jesus. You see, Jesus cleans. And if Jesus doesn't clean it, it isn't clean. Let me apply this very quickly if I can. Just three quick points of implication from Mark 7 as we see this Jesus who cleans. First point goes like this. Are you ready? You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. It's Moses speaking on behalf of Yahweh. And yes, that is a direct quotation from Exodus chapter 20, verse 7. And it is an implication. It is an application. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. That does not mean, Christian, that it is bad for you to say the word God out loud. That's not his name. That is his job description. That is his title. You can say God and mean it. In Exodus, taking the name of the Lord your God in vain means you attribute to Yahweh that which he did not say. And you say that Yahweh did not say a thing that he did say. You know how this feels when people attribute to a, you a thing that you didn't say. Did you hear about what she said? Oh my goodness, I can't believe she said this. And then she said this and you're like, I never said that. You want to chew their face off. And so does God. These scribes, these legislators, these Pharisees were saying, God says that you have to do thus and such. And so we want to be very careful not to ever say no where God has not said no. We don't want to say yes where God has not said yes. And so we do this thing called church together in a plurality of leadership where we look at one another and go, hey, we're pretty sure this is what the New Testament prescribes. This is some of the things that the New Testament describes. At this church and this campus, we do some things with frequency and regularity. We have a confession. We have assurance. We take communion. We do a doxology. Why? Because God said so? No, because we love it. <laughs> because we, the people of God, get to express and to declare the excellencies of God together on the same playing field. Has that been prescribed? No, it is not. And we might change it tomorrow, but we do so because we love our God together prayerfully as the staff and the elders and the leaders have come together. This is how we express in this context, and we have freedom to do that. It is not God's word that we do that particular order. We want to be careful not to take the name of our Lord, our God, in vain. And so I have to ask the hard question. 
What are the externals that you've trusted in as if they were God's idea? I don't drink, I don't dance, I don't chew, I don't go out with girls that do. So saith the Lord, except that he didn't. So let's be really careful that we don't impose those strictures on ourselves and then much worse, impose them on everybody else so that we can compare. It's been said, comparison is a thief of joy unless you're winning. And the human heart will always devise a system with which we can compare and accomplish and succeed. Do not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Number two, root, then fruit. Let me explain. Root, then fruit. It is so easy for us to get wrapped up in the 21st century and all the externals. You got to have the right uh, appliances. You got to have the right accessories. You got to have the right address. You got to have the right this and the that. And you have to have the right comments on social media. Have to all these things. And then we as evangelical Christians get really wrapped up and we like to spout off on Galatians 5, 22 and 23. And we talk about the fruit of the spirit. And I'm doing all these things to get the fruit of the spirit. Newsflash. It's not your fruit. It is the work that God is doing when we center and key on the root. That is Jesus, the object of our faith. And when you and I ever for a nanosecond begin to focus and emphasize and key on the fruit, we are in dangerous pharisaical territory. The fruit's not our responsibility. Paul is very cautious to say, but the fruit of the Spirit is, and the fruit comes from the root. Now, I don't get many opportunities to do this, but this morning is one of those opportunities where I get to offend everybody present equally. Woohoo! You heard Elise talk about it, the problem with too much information. In our day and age, there are a lot of people generally, not always, but generally of a particular generation that are sick and tired of another generation telling them how they should think and feel. <laughs> just go with me. Use your sanctified imaginations for a moment. But I want you to just imagine for a moment that there are younger generations in the world who are sick and tired of all the people of the planet being evaluated by externals. Can you possibly understand this for a moment? We, as the church, as evangelicals, have for very long on Sunday mornings confessed a great deal of acceptance, but practically between the Sundays, we have judged people by externals, how they live, where they where they vote, what they drive, how they dress, whatever it might be. And you know what? The world has changed and a whole lot of younger generations are saying, I am sick to death of everybody being evaluated based on externals. Now, the problem is, let me now offend all of those younger generations. There has been a tendency to throw the baby out with the bathwater. And they say, well, I don't care about the root. All I care about is the fruit. Everyone just needs to get along. We're all net neutral. We can fix this. Yes, we can. We're all going to have avocado toast and they agree with one another. No, we're not. Taco Bell. So we've got two problems. One solution. One solution. We are defiled already, but when we focus on the root, God produces the fruit. And believe it or not, both generations, both cultures are desperately dying for the solution, and it's Jesus. And I am committed that we have the answer. Jesus cleans. Third point. It's taken loosely from St. Augustine. It goes like this. Love God, do as you please. Now, depending on who you are and when your birthday is, that might freak you out. But he's right. Love God. First and foremost, do as you please. For when you love God, not need God to do things for you, not expect God to transactionally respond to the good things that you've done, but when you love him, you love him. You can't get enough of what he's like, what he has done. The, the way that Christ would encounter people on the streets, the way he engages with a woman in Lebanon, the way he sighs and says, Ephatha, to this Gentile. You just love him. You just, you can't. Then you will be producing fruit by the Spirit. Love God. Do as you please. See, Augustine was responding to a fourth century guy named Pelagius that was saying, no, we're all net neutral. Just do good and God will give you good stuff. And Augustine swore and said, that's right, wrong. No, 
Love God, do as you please, because he knew what scripture taught was that increasingly more what we want to do gets lined up with what we ought to do, and what we ought to do becomes increasingly what we want to do. And that, brethren and sistren, is freedom. That's freedom. World desperate for freedom, can't find it anyplace else. We have the answer. Jesus cleans, and if Jesus doesn't clean it, it isn't clean. That's one of my favorite portable statements I carry on. Love God, do as I please, because when I love God, I wouldn't do things to, to harm his renown, his reputation, to make him grieve my actions and my attitude. And when I do, I quickly confess, I'm the kind of guy that all 12 of those things in your list in Mark 7, Jesus, all 12 of them, I accomplished them exponentially on the drive to church. But you love me. You really, really do. You have me. And so I love him and I do as I please. And that's freedom. The long-awaited remedy and the Redeemer has indeed come to clean. I want to redirect your attention to Isaiah 35, verses 5 and 6, because there is God, there are people, but there is sin and there is judgment, but there's a Savior. Isaiah 35, verses 5 and 6, when the kingdom comes, when the king brings it, that's what Isaiah says will happen, then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute, mogilalon, is the only other time in your Bible that word is used. Jesus says, I got an appointment. I got to be in Lebanon by this such date. I've got to be back over here by that such date. I got to address the tired Sidonian Syrophoenician woman and I got to get over here to address the mogilalon man. See, the king has come and his kingdom is here and we are invited to live according to the future now. Sing for joy, for waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. Is your sphere of influence characterized by rejoicing, by joy, by waters breaking forth in the wilderness, by life coming from death, light coming from darkness. Sistren, brethren, hear me. You are God's plan for this world. It's you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that as we have walked through this word, you have continued to shine a very bright light on your son, Jesus, that he is the hope of the world. I thank you that the king has come and his kingdom is here and that we get to live from the future present. And so, Father, I pray, if there is anyone here this morning that is not persuaded that Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God, he is the savior of the world, would you move irresistibly and persuade them not that they have to fill out a form, not that they have to do a bunch of stuff, but that they would be fully opened, that they would be clean in your sight. Do this, I pray, for the rest of us, Father, who have fallen into whatever set of externals to feel good about our accomplishments. Thank you for the example of the scribes, the legislators, and the Pharisees, that we may not be likewise. We would be ready and humble to admit our error, no matter how sincere, and that you are the one that cleans. And if you don't clean it, it isn't clean. So clean us. Father, would you continue to stir in our hearts as we sing this song and worship together? May we be sincere and correct as we worship. We pray all these things, Father, in the power of your spirit and in the name of Jesus. Amen.